On Sunday mornings, the last several weeks, we have been in the New Testament. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, so tonight, I want us to go into the Old Testament uh, to a reading that you have had recently, not in the past week, but a couple weeks ago from 2 Chronicles. And if you'd like to go ahead and uh, open your Bible to 2 Chronicles 20, that is where we will be. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Tonight we're going to talk about a little known prayer that is tucked away in the Old Testament. A prayer that I only noticed when we were doing our yearly uh, Bible reading. Uh, And that's one of the benefits that I have found from doing this reading. And maybe it's been a benefit for you. You have seen things, read things, and been blessed by things in the Bible that you have never encountered before. Uh, that was certainly the case for me when I was reading in Second Chronicles chapter 20 and I stumbled upon this prayer. I don't remember ever having read it before. We're going to get to that prayer in just a minute, but when I was preparing this lesson, I started thinking about the prayer of Jabez. Does anybody remember this little best-selling book called The Prayer of Jabez? It was a very popular book. It was published in about the year 2000. It says, a New York Times bestseller. Real popular little devotional book here. And um, it kind of unearthed this prayer that was tucked away in the Old Testament. Uh, and claimed that it it would kind of unlock the potential of your life and it would provide breakthrough for you. And this prayer actually occurs in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. So if you want to keep your place in 2 Chronicles and and go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 4, check this out real quick with me. Uh, You also, if you've been keeping up with your daily Bible readings, you also read this. But I will forgive you if you completely missed this one because this really is hidden in some pretty dry material about the descendants of the various tribes of Jacob, uh, tribes of Israel. And so by the time you got to this section of Scripture, your eyes may have been totally glazed over or maybe you were doing some skimming to get through it quickly Uh, And you may have missed the prayer of Jabez. It was in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, about verse 10. Jabez, a descendant of Judah, it tells us here, called upon the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. There it is. That's the prayer of Jabez. That's the prayer that is featured in this little book that was so very popular Uh, for, I don't know, a year or two, uh, and that the author claimed this, this, everybody should be praying this prayer. There is power in this prayer. Now, I remember around that time and and a little bit after that, there was some pushback, and I heard some people say, listen, if you really want to know how best to pray, why are we rummaging around and pulling out an obscure prayer from an obscure figure in Scripture in the Old Testament? How about we look primarily at the prayer of Jesus. How about the Lord's Prayer? How about that be our template for how to pray? And I see the point there. 
And maybe this guy went a little too far with the prayer of Jabez, and, and maybe he said it would do a little more for you than what it would actually do. I, I think he was saying, this is the key to blessing your life, and that's taking it a little too far. But what I want to do tonight is not a whole lot unlike what Mr. Bruce Wilkinson does with the prayer of Jabez. I want us to look at an obscure prayer, but I really believe that this prayer, prayed by King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, though obscure, uh, though many may have passed over it, glossed over it without noticing, it is theologically rich. And the words that are prayed would be worth repeating, I believe, in our prayer lives today. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat prays this prayer. What do you know about this king, Jehoshaphat, except that he has a wonderful name, a name that you really ought to add to your list of, of uh, you know, if you have, you're looking to have children in the future and uh, you need a name, Jehoshaphat. Maybe consider that. that. That is just a really strong, good, biblical name. Jehoshaphat. What do you know about him? He was king over the southern kingdom, Judah. And as a kid, I remember learning about all of the kings in Sunday school. I don't know if you remember. I remember as a kid, a chart on the wall uh, with all the kings, started, starting with the United Kingdom starting with Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then, of course, it splits into two, the, the north in Israel, the south in Judah. And you see uh, Jeroboam begins the lineage of kings in the north, uh, Rehoboam in the south, all the way to uh, the time of exile for both kingdoms. I don't know that I ever memorized those, all of those kings, but I do remember the poster, the chart on the wall, and I think in some of those charts, it would tell you if it was a bad king or a good king. Because the scriptures tell us whether or not good or bad characterized the lives of these kings. Not that they were all totally good or all totally bad, but there was a, uh, a direction of each of their lives that was summarized by the writers of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles as they're talking about the lives and the leadership of these kings. King Jehoshaphat was one of the good guys. He was a good and godly king, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 17 at about verse 3. We read, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David, which is high praise for any king of Israel or Judah. He did not seek the Baals or the false gods. He sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. The northern kingdom had gone astray under really bad leadership. But Jehoshaphat stayed true to the ways of his father David. This is 2 Chronicles 17, now at verse 5. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. I love that statement. And furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. He was much like his father Asa, who was also a good and godly king, one that we can read about in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of Second Chronicles. We also know that while Jehoshaphat is ruling in the south, kings like Ahab 
and Jehoram are ruling in the north, contemporaneously in Israel. And we know about Ahab that he was the most wicked, the most evil king. And so it was during Jehoshaphat's reign that Elijah was prophesying in the north. And so all of those stories we read about Elijah going toe-to-toe with Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal, those events are happening while Jehoshaphat is on the throne in the southern kingdom in Judah. Jehoshaphat does join forces with Ahab in 2 Chronicles 18. And this is not something for which we would give Jehoshaphat high marks. Uh, we would not say that alliance was a good idea. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, Jehoshaphat is rebuked by a prophet of God. Jehu says to Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Speaking of his alliance with King Ahab of the north. Because of this, because of this alliance, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Ashtaroth out of the land and have set your heart to seek God. So this prophet sort of sums up Jehoshaphat's life. You did a bad thing by getting into cahoots with Ahab. But overall, your life is characterized by good. These kings were humans just like the rest of us. And in their lives were both good and bad. But in the case of Jehoshaphat, it's mostly good. He's characterized by goodness and by devotion to his Lord. Now I want us to look at a really frightening and harrowing event in during his reign, the reign of King Jehoshaphat, that we read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So let's start in verses 1 and 2. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Eden, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. So we read here that an alliance of foreign adversaries, these foreign nations have joined forces and they are marching, they are preparing for battle against Jehoshaphat and his forces from Judah. They are called a great multitude. There are probably many more soldiers that are part of this allied army than Jehoshaphat has in his ranks. And so this is a scary time for the king. Uh, and for the nation of Judah. And so, if you were in charge, if you were king or queen of Judah, what's your first act? When you get this news that these foreign nations have joined forces and they are coming for you. They are seeking uh, to fight against you. What are you going to do? You're going to call your military advisors together. You're going to form a, a battle plan. You know, you're going to get the military uh, plans ready to fight. Isn't that what you would do? Isn't that what we would do? That's the first order of business, right? Well, that's not what Jehoshaphat does as leader, as king. Check out what he does. Verse 3, he doesn't begin working out a battle plan. He doesn't call his military advisors. This is what he does. Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. 
He didn't begin right away in the planning to take on these enemies. He seeks the Lord. He sets his face to God. And the people over whom he is leading, they follow his godly lead. In verse 4, And Judah, the people, they assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. I think people, I think that they do want to seek God's will in their lives. I think they have an innate desire to know and to follow the will of God. They simply need good leadership to help show them the way. And Jehoshaphat provides that for these people, for Judah. He shows them that what you do first when you're in trouble, when you face difficulty, is you don't start getting your game plan together. No, the first thing that you do is you seek the Lord's will. When you're scared, when you're troubled, when you're in distress, what you do first and foremost is you bow before the Lord, you set your face to seek Him. He models that. He doesn't just preach that. He shows them how to do that, and they follow His lead. Jehoshaphat seems to understand this famous leadership aphorism. You cannot lead people where you have never been. Jehoshaphat loves the Lord. He wants to follow the Lord. He shows the people what that looks like. And they get in lockstep with him. They follow his lead. And so we see here an example of the difference that good godly leadership can make on a, on a people, on a nation. Jehoshaphat provides that for Judah. Now once everybody is gathered together, Jehoshaphat engages in the greatest act of leadership, which is prayer. He prays with his people. He prays over his people. He prays for his people. And this is what he says. And this is not a priest. He doesn't summon a religious leader to come and offer the prayer. These are the words of the king of Judah as he prays to his God. This is what he says, starting at verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. We will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on what a beautiful prayer. And the excerpt from that prayer that I've been teasing since I got up here, the prayer that I said we were going to rummage back through the Old Testament and find this tucked away, a little known prayer 
that is obscure and yet theologically rich. Did you catch it? Do you think you know what it is? It's the very last statement that Jehoshaphat makes to the Lord. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat says, Lord, I know what I want you to do. I want you to execute judgment on these people. Please do that, Lord. That is our, that's not just my prayer, that is our prayer, that is our desire. Please execute judgment on them because, Lord, you need to know that we are powerless against them. There is nothing we can do by our own strength and ability to stop this horde. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We have no idea what action we should take. We don't think there's anything that we can do. But we know on whom to focus. And that's you. And one reason that I love that prayer is that I've been there. Have you been in a place like that? Where you know what you want the Lord to do. And you know what your prayer is. You know what it is you are asking from the Lord. And you're asking it because you are powerless to get it on your own. You are powerless to achieve it or to attain it. And you know without the Lord's help, it's not going to happen. And so you say to the Lord, maybe not in these words, but in some other words, or at least in your heart, you say to the Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know how to make this happen in my life, but I know in whom I should trust. And that's you. I know on whom I should fix my eyes. And that's you. I've been there. And some of you have been there in much weightier, more serious, more dire situations than I have. That's one reason I think we can all relate to this prayer is because we have felt on some level what Jehoshaphat was feeling here. Lord, this is our prayer. Lord, execute judgment on these people because we can't. I don't know what we can do. I just know that we are going to fix our eyes on you. And we can tell Jehoshaphat has fixed his eyes on God, that he's focused on God, if we look back at the content of his prayer. The prayer that I just read in its entirety. Verse 6, he praises God for who he is. He says, you are God in heaven. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Jehoshaphat acknowledges his worldwide sovereignty over all peoples and people groups. He praises God for who he is, for his character. And then he thanks God for what he's done. In verse 7 he says, But out of all the people groups, you have chosen us, your special people, Israel, the children of Abraham, and you have given us this special land, the descendants of our father Abraham. So he praises God for who He is, and He thanks God for what He's done for Him and for His people. And He pledges allegiance to God no matter what. In verses 8 and 9, He says, this temple that we have built for you, a place where you can dwell in a special way, no matter what happens, if disaster comes upon us, if we're struck down by the sword, or if we face judgment or pestilence or famine, we will come to this house before you. We will cry out to you. We will pray to you. We will be here regardless of what happens 
in our lives. I pledge allegiance to my God no matter what happens. He does all this. He says all this in his prayer before he even gets to the matter at hand. Remember, there is an invading army marching on Judah at this very moment, but Jehoshaphat takes time to praise God, to thank God, to tell God that he will be devoted to him regardless of any bad stuff that comes his way and the way of the people that he leads. He does all this before he gets to the matter at hand, that a horde is on its way, and Lord, you are our only hope. Our only hope is in you. Only you can save us. This is one of those end of my rope, out of options sort of prayer. It's the ultimate prayer of faith. And it's a hard one for us to pray sometimes. Because we delight in human ingenuity and solutions. We fancy ourselves as people who can figure out any problem. Who can fix any broken situation. We can do it. And we are told by our culture, by American society, hey, if you think hard enough, if you work hard enough, if you reason hard enough, you're going to figure it out. You're going to be able to get to the bottom of it, and you can do it. Well, that's not what Jehoshaphat says here. Jehoshaphat says there is no battle plan, there is no type of of military invasion that is going to help us against this army. We are powerless against them. God, only you can do something. So I'm fixing my eyes on you. This is a hard prayer for us. Because we believe in the power of our dreams and our hard work and our abilities. But this this is why this is a good prayer for us. Because it transforms us into people who do not trust in ourselves, but in our God. And I liked what Mark Hastings said when he was here Wednesday night. He said something along these lines. Prayer doesn't always change the outcome, what you're praying about, but it always changes you. And I really believe that. I believe prayer is as much about changing our character as it is changing our circumstances. God may not always answer our prayers in the affirmative. For some mysterious reason, His will may not line up with whatever it is we are asking. But in our prayer, regardless of the answer, we will slowly learn how to trust in Him and in His timing and in His answer and in His will. But in this case... In this story, God does honor this prayer. When Jehoshaphat comes before him and when he says, please execute judgment on our enemies, there is nothing we can do. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. We are told immediately after this, the Lord's Spirit comes upon a prophet and he says to all the people gathered, he says, this is... Chapter 20, verse 15, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, it is God's. A little bit later, verse 17, 
you will need to you will not need to fight in this battle so stand firm hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf a few verses later or a few lines later the Lord will be with you so God answers this prayer and he says I will be with you and I will execute judgment on these people and you don't have to do a thing well actually that's not true you do have to go out as if you're going to fight. You do have to go out in faith that I will care for you, but you will not have to take up arms. This is not your battle, and I'm going to prove to you that I will fight for you, and I will win this victory on your behalf. You need only to be still and to watch me work. And through a really strange circumstance in Verses 22 and 23. The armies come and they get confused and they rise up and and they destroy one another. And the people of Judah are witnesses to this great victory that God has won for them. God honors the prayer of Jehoshaphat here. And maybe God is ready to honor this type of prayer in your life. The type of prayer that says, God, I don't know what to do. I don't think there's anything that I can do. I know what it is I want you to do, but I'm leaving it in your hands. My eyes are fixed on you. I am placing my complete trust in you. Maybe God is ready to honor that sort of prayer in your life if you only ask Him. Maybe there's a battle brewing in your life and you are powerless to fight it on your own. And you need, like Jehoshaphat, to come before God and to say, this enemy that I'm facing, I don't know what to do. But I want to defeat the enemy and I know you're the only one who can. And so I'm coming to you and I'm begging you, please, Fight for me. I can't do anything. But I know that you are not powerless. And so my eyes are fixed on you. And I place my trust in you. Maybe it's time for you to let go and to let God. Sometimes we don't know what we're going to do in life. And what Jehoshaphat, what this passage teaches us is placing our eyes on the Lord is enough. And so tonight, I want to challenge you to fix your eyes on Him. And just watch what happens. What I want to remind you as we close is that you can only be saved by His grace, God's grace through your faith. You are powerless to attain your salvation by by works, by meritorious deeds. We are powerless to earn our salvation from God. It is a gift from God received because of the gift, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and received through our obedient faith. And so tonight, maybe you need to come and confess faith in Christ and be baptized into His name so that you can be a part of God's family. Or maybe you need to come and ask for prayers from this body of believers or if you need forgiveness from the Lord if you need to rededicate your life to Him.
we want to offer the invitation once more today before we close out. Why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?